I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in our series, What We Believe and What We Do Because We Believe It. At Van City, we believe presence and participation in the church are essential to following Jesus. But really, what is church? And why should we show up and participate every week? Church is weird. I mean specifically, uh, like church gatherings are weird if you think about it. Um, if you grew up in the church, uh, going every Sunday to a church service, it's not weird. It's, it's normal. If you started following Jesus in adulthood with no church background, you may know what I mean. So we walk into a room with a random group of people and sit in rows, sing songs, and then not sing songs. Some person talks to everyone for about 30 or 40 minutes using kind of uncommon words and ideas. We eat a small piece of uh, cracker and, or bread and, and drink some grape juice, pretending it's a guy's body and blood that we're consuming. Sometimes we stand, sometimes we sit, sometimes we sit in silence, and then it's over. It really can be a bizarre experience for someone who doesn't know the reasons behind why we do what we do during the gathering. What are we doing here, anyway? At Van City, we've had plenty of people participate in the gathering who don't follow Jesus or on the fence about following Jesus or ascribe to a different religion altogether. Could you explain to them why you show up every week and do this thing? Could you explain an understanding of the church based on what the scriptures have to say, or is it just kind of like your instinctual reasons why you're here? Are we a social club, a social justice organization, a place to listen to spiritual TED Talks, a place to recharge your spiritual batteries so you can be a better person throughout the week? What is church, and why are you here tonight? Go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We are in the midst of a series entitled, uh, What We Believe and What We Do Because We Believe It. We're going through all of kind of the core doctrine of the church and how it affects our everyday lives. Last week, we traversed the fascinating and challenging collection of writings we call the Bible or the Scriptures. And we define the Bible as this. The Bible is a library of writings, both human and divine, that together tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. This collection of writings is is inspired by God and authoritative for the disciple of Jesus, as Jesus demonstrated and taught. Our relationship to the scriptures, this authority they have uh, over our lives, is summed up, I think, pretty well by J.I. Packer. Again, this is from last week. Our approach to the Bible is an advanced commitment to receive as truth from God all that scripture is found on inspection to actually Uh, on inspection actually to teach. It's from the story of the scriptures and what upon inspection they're found to actually teach where we shape our understanding and definition of church. Uh, One of the most interesting skills to learn about in seminary, at least to me, is uh, biblical theology, which is just learning how to trace themes, ideas, or concepts throughout the the scriptures from Old Testament to New Testament. It's, It's a way to kind of expose yourself to the robustness of the scriptures and their depth. And one of my favorite projects in seminary was tracing a biblical theology of, uh, get this, clothing from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, You know, clothes are clothes, though, right? Like, why in the world would I devote 
time to just see what the Bible had to say about clothing. Um, yeah, clothes are clothes, but at times they're also used as metaphor or imagery that points to things like the defilement of sin experienced by humanity and, you know, the restoration and cleansing of God's forgiveness. Clothes are clothes, but they can mean so much more in the scriptures as well. The idea of church is one of those concepts that has a lot of facets to it that you can kind of trace throughout the scriptures in a lot of different ways and as assemble kind of a nuanced picture of what church, is, uh, what church is. And tonight, we have time to pick up only one of those threads and to take it from the Old Testament to the New Testament, which leads us back to Genesis chapter 12. So go ahead and stand up as a gesture of reverence for God's word and his story. Let's read chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord uh, had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. All right. So let's get our bearings in the story of the scriptures before we talk about this specific text in Genesis 12. So uh, 11 chapters earlier, God does an amazing work of creative artistry, bringing order and thriving where there was once only chaos. The crown jewel of God's creation were creatures he decided to make in his image, uh, humans, us. Uh, he speci specifically blesses humans and gives them a specific purpose to rule over God's good creation, stewarding the earth and working to maximize its potential beauty and richness. And as the story goes, things went awry fairly quickly. Adam and Eve, the first humans, or you know, perhaps we can see them as some type of like archetypes of humanity, rebel against God as they grasp autonomy from God and his goodness. And they become in cahoots with a malevolent spiritual being who took on the form of a serpent who looks to reap destruction in God's good creation. And where once there was God's blessing which is his invitation and empowerment to flourish and thrive, now there is a curse hanging over creation. The reality of death, destruction, scarcity, the, and defilement as the result of, of Adam and Eve's rebellion. It's a disaster. Genesis chapters 4 through 11 tell of this repeated cycle of human evil, rebellion, and wickedness sprinkled with occasional people who are faithful to God and then God's response to it all. And before we come to Genesis 12 and Abram, it seems like the story is kind of stuck in this cycle. Humans are hopelessly tainted and bent towards rebellion and evil. God responds with justice and, and, and also mercy. And yet, sin continues to infect all of creation. And then there's Abram. He's known more widely as Abraham, a change of name God gives him a little later in the story. So if you're new to the Bible or you just never knew before, Abram, Abraham, they're the, they're the same guy. Uh, Abram hails from the pagan ancient historical city-state of Ur. It's been dug up by archaeologists. It, it was a real place. Um, Abram is fairly old, married, and childless, which is, a dis is, is disastrous in existential, religious, social, and economic ways for a person in Abram's culture. 
stigmas such as cursed by the gods, the shame reinforced by the community rather than being met with sympathy, and, and no family name passed on, you know, nobody to pass along your family business and, and your way of life. This is Abram with his wife Sarai. So maybe when one of the gods, specifically the single god we know as Yahweh, calls Abram to leave his homeland and to migrate to a new land, I can imagine that perhaps there's some motivation to leave behind some of the stigma. And at the same time, this specific God makes a promise to Abram if he obeys and undertakes this journey to an unknown land and an unknown future. Uh, the language and concept of this promise is a covenant uh, akin to a marriage. God is committing to Abram if Abram is willing to commit and obey God. So, from Genesis 12, God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. Uh, don't think political entity, think innumerable descendants, uh, a nation-sized family. Abram, childless old man, will be given a nation of descendants by God. And I will bless you, God tells him. Blessing is a key theme in this promise by God. Abram will receive God's favor and lavish generosity. I will make your name great. Again, childless Abram, the one with no future, who without a child will have his name snuffed out as if he never existed, everyone will know his name. Abram, who is leaving everyone who knows him to a strange land full of strangers, God will make sure people have his name on their lips. And you will be a blessing, God says. Abram, the, the one who would be regarded as cursed by the gods, he will epitomize what favor from God looks like. What does God's lavish generosity and kindness look like? Abram, that's what it looks like. Childless, homeless, and without a future to pass along, he becomes the recipient of generosity and kindness beyond imagination. I will bless those who bless you. God chooses to enter into a covenant relationship with Abram, and those who bless Abram will share in and experience the covenant blessings intended for Abram. And whoever curses you, I will curse. Likewise, the one who curses or treats Abram with contempt is essentially treating God that way, since God has entered into a covenant relationship with Abram. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Through Abram, a childless old man, the entire earth will be blessed through him. That's amazing enough of a statement on its own, but the author of Genesis is doing something even deeper. What's the opposite of a blessing? Curse. Yeah, a curse. God's astounding desire is for the curse that permeated all of creation after the rebellion of humans to be pushed back by blessing. Through Abram, God wants to bring blessing, not cursing. Now, uh, let's take a collective breath. If someone were to ask you, why do you go to church? You probably wouldn't think to include Abraham in that answer, I, I assume. 
Uh, my first Uber ride was in San Diego about seven years ago. And my second Uber ride was also in San Diego during that time. And the second ride was much more memorable than the first. I remember uh, the driver had AK-47 bumper stickers on his sedan, although I noticed these only after he dropped us off and was driving away, which is maybe for the better. Um, he was a Muslim man who was quick to chat with me about who I was, you know, small talk kind of stuff but there was kind of this edge to it. Not just passing time, he was looking for something interesting to grasp onto. Well, very quickly, I ended up talking about working for a church, and he goes, oh yeah, Christian, huh? He, he said to me, I'm Muslim, but I've been very fascinated uh, by Judaism recently. Why don't you Christians follow the Jewish law in the Old Testament? And man, <laughs> I cannot stress how much this is like hitting the lottery to me. A stranger, <laughs> a stranger from a different religion wants to talk theology with me. I had to play it cool though. Like, uh, like in my mind, I'm thinking like, okay, breathe Cameron. Okay, don't, don't scare him away and get too excited, you know? So uh, I, I told him, well, because of Abraham. Fun fact for you, about 56% uh, of the world uh, follows a religion that reveres Abraham as a prophet and critical figure in human history. Uh, the three main ones are, you know, Christianity, Islam, and of course, Judaism. I figured if he was a Muslim who was into Judaism, I couldn't go wrong with Abraham. <laughs> And he was confused. Uh, <laughs> I think he assumed I would go straight to talking about Jesus. He said something along the lines of like, Abraham, what does that have to do with Jesus? Uh, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians is in the New Testament after the biographies of Jesus. Uh, consult the table of contents if you're getting lost back in there. That's fine. We're not quite sure when Abraham lived, but he was probably somewhere in the ballpark of, of 1,500 years before Jesus. But Abraham was still an important character, shaping the expectations of the early disciples as the gospel about Jesus began to spread and germinate around the Roman Empire and beyond. Didn't God promise to bless the whole world through Abraham? Wasn't Jesus a descendant of Abraham, and isn't his gospel of reconciliation and salvation for the entire world? Dots were connected, and the church interpreted the covenant that God made with Abraham as pointing forward to Jesus. Which, at least in my mind, that's been shaped by Christian theology, does kind of make sense, right? It's not a huge leap. And I find it beautifully creative, surprising, and awe-inspiring that, that God would craft such a layered salvation story. But that doesn't quite connect the dots from Abraham to us sitting here tonight, the church. Paul, a master apprentice of Jesus and, and the most influential missionary and theologian of all time, helps us out by connecting the dots from Abraham to the church, to us. Writing to the church that was inhabiting the region of Galatia in uh, Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26, he wrote, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. We are children of God through faith, not the Jewish law, as the Uber driver had asked about. Paul goes on, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ imagery and metaphor for the act of baptism. 
You go into the waters of, uh, of Christ and come up out of the waters clothed with Christ. The waters of baptism are, baptism are among other things, a metaphor uh, of how permeated in Christ we are. And if you haven't been baptized yet, uh, I'd love to talk to you after the gathering. Come, come grab me. Uh, Paul goes on, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The church in Galatia was a mixed ethnicity group squabbling over who is more important to God based on ethnicity and whether following the Jewish law was mandatory, among other things they were arguing about. But Paul wants them to understand that now that we've all been baptized in Christ and clothed with him, the cultural markers that would have elevated some over others based on ethnicity or socioeconomic status or gender are now demolished. There is radical equality in Christ. So Paul goes on, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, or another way to say that is descendant, and heirs according to the promise. And here's the kicker. Uh, all this points back to Abraham. Uh, this story from the scriptures of an obscure, ancient, childless old man who enters into a covenant with God becomes our story. And Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of that promise God made to Abraham. And now, through Jesus, we are the result of God's promise to Abraham to bless the world. The, the reverberations of this promise fulfilled in Abraham's descendant, Jesus, are still resounding so that now we join that story to push forward God's blessing to his creation and to push back the, the curse of the fall, the evil, the brokenness, the injustice, and the death that permeates God's creation. Why don't we follow the Jewish law? The Uber driver asked me, because of Abraham, at least in, in one sense, we are joined to God's covenant with Abraham through faith in Christ. The Jewish law doesn't get us there. Why do we show up here on a Sunday night? Abraham, at least in one sense, the way God chose to work healing and salvation for the cursed world is by making a covenant with Abraham. And through Abraham's descendant, Jesus, we are brought into this covenant through faith in Jesus. And now we are heirs of God's promise to, to Abraham to bring blessing to the world. All right, let's take a step back again and, and take a breath. Uh, a breath. Um, that was a lot of Bible, and we have more to go in just a minute. Fair warning. Um, I'm not sorry about that, even if you are. Uh, I like this stuff. So, what is church? What is church? A dictionary definition would have you believe it's a, it's a building, as in, you know, let's meet at the church. Uh, pop Christian culture would probably define it as what happens on a Sunday inside a building, as in church starts at 5 p.m., which is that, that, that way of using the word church is so, like, pervasive that even in this teaching, I was using it like that and had to go back through and be like, no, no, that's not what we're talking about. It's so pervasive. Now, there's probably a million different theological definitions of what the church is. Uh, defined by theologians, by church traditions, and various church leaders. Many of them are good, solid definitions. And it's hard to capture all of the ideas about church found in the scriptures in a couple of sentences. 
So most definitions will have their own particular emphasis, what's most important about the church. Uh, rather than formulating the theological definition of what church is, I think it's helpful to think about various individual definitions as, a, as, as single lenses through which we get to view the church. It's, they're just one way to conceptualize church, but not the way to conceptualize church. Now, uh, with that said, one def definition that helped uh, shape this teaching is from the scholar N.T. Wright. His definition of the church is this. The church is the single multi-ethnic family promised by the Creator God to Abraham. It was brought into being through Israel's Messiah, Jesus. It was energized by God's Spirit, and it was called to bring the transformative news of God's rescuing justice to the whole creation. Church, not as a building or an event, but a family. A really, really, really big family. So, if that's a working definition of the church, what's our part in all of this? Because Paul in Galatians said we are in Christ and heirs of the promise to Abraham, in particular to bring blessing to the world. So, if that's, that's us, what does that actually mean? I suspect when I talk about us as in Christ and, and bringing blessing to the world, maybe some specific ideas come to mind, assumptions even. Perhaps what you envisage is something along the lines of helping at a soup kitchen or, you know, feeding the, the most vulnerable in our society or, or traveling somewhere overseas for a week or two to do some humanitarian work, you know, doing specific acts of selflessness in order to meet specific needs. Or perhaps it's that you're a really, really good person, you know, nice, polite, conscientious, a friendly neighbor, a considerate coworker. You volunteer from time to time. You give money to some good causes. You, as a good person, are a blessing to the world. And those aren't bad things. In fact, I think all of those are good things. But what if I told you that this idea of, of being a blessing to the world as we continue the promise of God to Abraham has less to do with you being an individually stand-up person and has more to do with us together, the church. You see, when Paul says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed or descendant, that you isn't singular, it's plural. He's saying you all. We typically read the Bible, particularly the New Testament, as if it's talking about me as an individual. It's speaking to me, and it has things to say about me. And that's not always wrong, just really overemphasized in our culture. Our culture reads the stuff in the Scriptures, typically with a lens focused on the individual in order to understand the group. I'm forgiven, and I'm saved, and so are you. And so that's what church is, a collection of individuals who gather together because they've been saved and forgiven. Again, that, that's not wrong per se, just a bit overemphasized. The New Testament authors had the cultural lens of collectivism, which sees the individual firstly defined by the group that they are a part of, which means the church is a group of God's people saved and forgiven. And since you're a part of it, then you must be saved and forgiven as well. You see the difference? One way works from the individual to define the group. The other works to define the group in order to understand the individual. That's a bit technical, but, but critical to understanding as part of our lifelong journey of understanding and, and being formed by the Scriptures and how to read the Scriptures well. So with all that individualism and collectivism stuff, 
uh, in the back of your minds one more time, turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. From Galatians, it'll probably be a handful of pages or so to the left. You're pretty close to it. Paul, writing to the church in the city of Corinth, navigates this tension between group identity and the individual as it pertains to different gifts exercised and uh, roles in the church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to start reading in verse 12. Just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, remember that language from Galatians, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part but of many. Now, the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. So notice Paul is valuing the uniqueness of individuals here. Sameness is not the goal. Diversity of individuals is a good thing, but that's not all he's saying. Let's keep reading. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffer, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Individuality is a good thing, as long as it promotes unity and health and equality within the whole. It's a good thing when each part plays a role in the whole, and the whole cares for each and values each individual part. You and I matter to the church. We play a role in the functioning of the body of Christ. As the church participates in God-blessing creation, we each have a role and part to play in it. Our presence and our participation in church matters. But as much as we'd like to believe that the church is carrying on the promise of God made to Abraham to bless the world through him, uh, I think it's fair to say we, we also know that church can very often perpetuate or reinforce the curse of the fall, the brokenness and evil that is, is woven throughout creation. The church has been responsible for countless evils during its 2,000 years of existence, and if we could keep those evils just re relegated to the history books, that would be one thing. But I know there are people sitting in this room, I'm sure even more than I'm aware of, that have personally felt the evil perpetuated by the church. Manipulation, racism, sexism, all kinds of abuse. Uh, Greedy leaders spurring on pious generosity from families that can ill afford it, only to turn around and empty the church bank accounts on their own greedy 
desires. Recently, I've been reading and listening to clinical researchers who specialize in spiritual abuse, and what I keep hearing from them is that they see noticeable similarities between the deep harm spiritual abuse does and the harm of sexual abuse. And that's not to compare wounds and about who has it worse. That's simply to acknowledge that spiritual abuse, particularly when found within the church, is deeply violating and traumatic. It doesn't just make church stuff hard. As all trauma does, it shapes your brain physically. It's a big deal. And it's the kind of evil that that God wants to eradicate, not perpetuate. And I'm really sorry that you've experienced it. If you've been around the church, any church long enough, you'll experience in the same way the church falling short of carrying forward this promise to to Abraham of blessing. Sometimes it looks as ugly as abuse, uh, but more often than not, it looks like leadership decisions that you don't like or are hurt by. Theology that seems to intentionally demean others, a teaching on a Sunday that doesn't sit well with you, not this one, obviously. (laughs) a leader that frustrates or annoys you or lets you down. It looks like anger, fear, frustration. It looks like confusion over theology or your purpose. It looks like disappointment. And that doesn't feel like an ancient divine promise of blessing being furthered through your life or the church. What is it supposed to feel like? Here's my theory, this is my theory, uh, as to what we expect it should feel like. Transcendent. As in an experience or existence that is beyond the norm, an an experience or existence that we cannot uh, attain on our own. Uh, Now, this theory of mine is based on, I don't know, I'd guess at this point, hundreds of conversations with Fan City people over the years. It's based on church trends that I've seen and continue to see. It's based on conversations with people who don't follow Jesus anymore. It's based on my own expectations. Something about Christianity, Jesus, the church, being this blessing to the world should feel transcendent, other than ourselves. Supernatural, even. And there are probably a myriad of hopes that we long for and experience of the transcendent to help with, whether these hopes are appropriate or not. For a number of people, they long for transcendence to give them subjective proof that God exists, that he's real, that the Christian God, as revealed through Jesus of Nazareth, is interacting with them, making it possible to believe in him. For others, uh, the hope for a transcendent experience is to lessen their suffering. They want a God who heals their body or their anxiety or their trauma, or maybe not outright healing, but at least to bring positive emotions and feelings and sensations that help to cope with the physical or mental pain. For still others, the transcendent is to be found at all times because God is always with us and always loves us. So, of course, this experience would go beyond the normal experience we would have without God. Church is is a transcendent experience. Community is. Eating a meal with a friend. Finding a really good parking spot. And still others yearn for the transcendent because they're scared. They're scared that they aren't worth much of anything. 
that they aren't truly loved or lovable, that they aren't worthy of something like that. So a God who loves them would surely help the scared person feel loved and lovable. A transcendent experience would confirm that they are loved, worthy, and valuable. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list, just some that I've found kind of the most common with people, particularly within our church. Maybe you identify with one of these or some of them or all of them. Uh, Maybe none resonate with you. You have different reasons for hoping and longing for transcendence. Whatever the case is, the problem isn't that we long for these things. I think God does, in fact, meet us in these places with transcendent experiences to increase our faith that that He's there or to bring comfort to the suffering, uh, to show up in the ordinary routines of life, to reinforce that He does value and love us. The problem is when we assume or believe that something is wrong, when we don't experience God as transcendent, when there's no room for life with God to be ordinary, mundane, boring, when we ask for something transcendent and God does not give us what we want. Is he mad at me? Did I do something wrong? Is he actually there? It's a particular problem when we need church, the gathering, or uh, your Van City community to always be a transcendent experience for us to value it and actually show up. We can't allow it to be mundane for us because it needs to be uh, transcendent. Uh, Levi over here, who shepherds the worship at Man City, who I think I'm biased because we're friends. I actually really do like you. Uh, He's an incredibly gifted and talented musician who's also very theologically astute and grounded. For him, he, he needs to always have the right combination of musicians and songs to lead songs of worship that help you experience something transcendent every week. Or Josh, uh, who is usually up here teaching uh, the church from the scriptures, who again, I mean, friends and I'm biased, but he's one of the most creative and thoughtful Bible teachers I've ever had the privilege to listen to. You know, he always has to make sure you laugh hard and think and feel deeply and lead you into some transcendent spiritual experience by the end of the teaching. Because if the gathering or your Van City community doesn't feel transcendent, what are we doing here, right? It's a warm, sunny spring day. Why not go to the park instead of church? It'll probably be more life-giving than doing you know, the same old stuff that we do every week at the gathering. Or it's been a long, jam-packed week. The last thing you want to do is attend to one more obligation. Just sit back at home and, you know, refresh and recharge. Church and community will still be there. There's always next week. Or, or, you know, the recent practices haven't really been your thing. You have better things to do with your weekday evening than to show up to your communities. You know, you'll prioritize your community when the practices are actually, like, helpful. Or you realize that you've been showing up pretty consistently to church and community. That probably means you've earned a week off to do what you want to do. It's good to reward yourself from time to time. What are we doing here? Are we the reverberation of God's promise to bring blessing to the world? Are we the embodiment of the king of the universe, the body of Christ? Is what happens week in and week out at the gathering and in your community transcendent? 
Maybe we need to add to our paradigm of what is and is not transcendent. Momentary experiences and feelings of transcendence can be valuable, for sure. But maybe what is also transcendent is that about 4,500 years after Abraham, we're here on the other side of the world, sitting with the words God spoke over him. Maybe what's transcendent is that a group of mostly strangers would gather together for years, once or twice a week, to participate in God's work to bless the world. Maybe what's transcendent is spending your life learning how to be a part of this thing called the body of Christ. Maybe what's transcendent is showing up when things don't feel transcendent. When you have reasons or excuses not to be present, not to participate, and you choose to show up anyway. When you die, will your life reflect transcendence in the form of transformation and formation? Or will it reflect a life chasing transcendent momentary experiences to the detriment of your character and your formation? For those of you who call Van City your home church, you've heard us repeat this hundreds of times at this point in a bunch of different ways from Sunday gathering to practices to basics. Our encouragement for you, the well-being of your soul and relationship with Jesus, and also for the well-being of our church, is to show up faithfully every week to the Sunday gathering in your Van City community. Every week, show up and participate in whatever ways you can and are needed. If you're sick or at work or on vacation, those are obvious exceptions to what we're talking about. And even in those situations, We wish you could be gathering with us or with your community. Your absence matters. It's felt. Nobody expects you to be perfect at this, and nobody's hanging around taking attendance every single week. That would be torture. But we do want you to make it your goal to grow in this. Make it your goal to grow in this. If left to your own devices, you'd show up to the Sunday gathering once a month or less, we want you to grow whether that's a process or momentary decision. Maybe you start coming twice a month and then three times a month. And sooner than later, you're coming every week. Maybe that would be appropriate growth for you. And for others, it might be a cop-out to drag out that process of showing up. Maybe you need to simply make the decision to come every week and prioritize church and community for your well-being and the well-being of your church. It's just time to do this thing. Now, for some, uh, I imagine your suspicion is that we just want numbers. We just want big crowds on Sundays. Well, um, my response to that is even if everyone showed up, it's not like we have a mega church here or anything like that. (laughs) So take that, all right? Uh, You know, we just want lots of people in community, whatever. That's why we keep harping on this stuff. You know, but instead of, like, trying to dive into all the reasons, like I just said, of, of why that's not the case, I'll just let Christians from similar and also very different theological and church traditions tell you succinctly what I've just spent 40 minutes talking to you about, okay? Ronald Rollheiser, a Catholic priest and theologian, has this to say about church and our part in it. Part of the very essence of Christianity is to be together in a concrete community with all the real human faults that are there and the tensions that this will bring us. Spirituality for a Christian can never be an individualistic quest, the pursuit of God outside of community, family, and church. 
The God of the incarnation tells us that anyone who says he or she loves an invisible God in heaven and is unwilling to deal with a visible neighbor on earth is a liar, since no one can love a God who cannot be seen if he or she cannot love a neighbor who can be seen. Hence, a Christian spirituality is always as much about dealing with each other as it is about dealing with God. This show up and participate in church isn't only some weird Van City stuff. You know, this isn't like just a weird American Protestant thing. It's at least a Catholic thing as well. <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor and theologian. He chose to stay in Germany during World War II to help the underground Christian church. So in the years leading up to World War II, he watched in dismay as the German Lutheran church, the largest Christian church in Germany, became bedfellows with Hitler and the Nazi regime. He was arrested by the Nazis in April 1943 and imprisoned, and he was eventually executed by the Nazi regime about a month before the war ended, which would have given him his freedom. Instead of deconstructing his faith as he watched his church, his home church, his home denomination, lock arms with the Nazi regime, or at least, you know, shunning the church and re retreating to the world of scholars and acad academics, which he was definitely bright enough to do. He instead insisted on the importance of the Christian community. He sacrificed career and ultimately his life to nurture the underground German church. And he wrote some incredibly profound ideas around disillusionment and church, among other topics. Bonhoeffer wrote, just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. He goes on to write, The sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Every human wish stream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. When church disappoints you, it's not an excuse to give up, to check out. It's how we begin to, to truly deal with ourselves and our church as it is, not as we imagine or wish or fantasize ourselves or church would be. And finally, authors who are probably more relatable to us, Protestant Christians, uh, one who lives in the Pacific Northwest, uh, see Christopher Smith and John Pattison in their book, Slow Church, write this. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. Again, this isn't just a weird Van City trying to be punk rock thing when we tell you again and again to show up to church and your community every week. It's for your well-being 
and it's for the well-being of those around you, as, you as, as has been articulated by the Christian church for 2,000 years. Because of this, to end, uh, I'd like to share with you kind of a working definition of church for Van City. Not something written in stone, but something that articulates what church is and why our presence and participation matters. Discipleship to Jesus is always carried out in the context of community. The Christian community, the church, is made up of all kinds of people with all kinds of stories and is where we experience the transformative power of vulnerability, accountability, and shared life. The church is a people, and thus it is broken and imperfect. As with all relationships and communities, we accept the inevitability of human failure without being overwhelmed or undone by it. Though we can be hurt by others, spiritual formation happens first and foremost in the context of relationships. In community, we open our lives to one another in vulnerability and hold one another accountable to the authority of the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus with compassion and forgiving grace. This is the only way to follow Jesus. Are we ready to do this thing together? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.